Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and thanks for joining us again on another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Today, we have for you Lane Kwauka. I hope I said that correctly. Lane, can you please uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, everybody. Aloha. So currently, I own 8,500 rental properties, uh, $1.2 billion of assets under ownership. Some could say we're kind of real estate moguls, but, you know, I just wanted to come on today and kind of teach people how we got started and, you know, how, you know, kind of the immigrant story of, um, you know, just buying little rental properties and just kind of expanding from there. And it's nothing that anybody can't do. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're joining us from today and just maybe a little bit about your family heritage? I'm out here in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, grew up here. My heritage is Japanese. I believe we're kind of like the second or third generation out here, but you know, Hawaii is kind of a strange place in terms of immigration and assimilating into American culture because it's a very, it, it, most of the people out here are minorities, which is kind of a strange um, place in the 50th state of the United States. I think because of that, we kind of hold on to our traditional values and foods too. <laughs> so you've always lived in Hawaii or were you on mainland at any point? Yeah. I mean, I was on the mainland for maybe about a little over a dozen years, 14 years. I went to the university in Washington and uh, where I went to school to become an engineer. Um, but, you know, growing up, the whole mindset was sort of like an immigrant as many of my investors today are first generation wealth and many of those are immigrants um the mentality that, that my parents taught me and maybe a lot of people can resonate with is you know you're very frugal with your money you don't you don't spend which don't have you save probably things you probably shouldn't like bags for example um mm -hmm. you don't buy soft drinks when you go to a restaurant because that's kind of a rip off um and you save your money for no good reason, you buy a house to live in, you study your ass off, you, and you get a bachelor's of science degree, ain't no bachelor's of arts, and you become <laughs> some kind of, you know, engineer, doctor, lawyer, dentist, something hard science like that. And, you know, like growing up, I, for some reason, you know, maybe just because I was an Asian kid, I don't know, people said I was good at math and science. So you kind of follow a linear path of, uh, you know, maybe I wasn't that good. Maybe I just, because I went to Kamon, I was forced to do that type of stuff. But I went, followed that path through high school and then college, become an engineer. And I went into a career that I really didn't like from the first day. And I think that's something that a lot of people out there, at least the people I work with, who are high paid professionals, 
um, you know, you went into a profession because of the money and partially because of that is because your upbringing and your, you've been programmed from your parents in good conscience um, to kind of go down this path. Right, right. So how did you get into this passive income line of business? Like I said, I started working and, you know, like a lot of young professionals who um, go to college um, in the hard sciences, right? <laughs> you, yeah, you actually end up with a six-figure salary. And as a young 20-something-year-old, I had very little overhead. Um, again, being, you know, being brought up with a very frugal mindset, I was very interested in saving my money and, you know, eventually getting to this thing that I didn't quite understand called financial independence. So I was saving, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars right out of college. And all I knew was everybody told me I was supposed to invest in this 401k stock market and save up to buy a house to live in. And damn it, that's what I did. Um, in a few years, I had saved up 80 grand to go buy a $350,000 house in Seattle, Washington. And, you know, still all just following this linear path, right? Maxing out my 401k because that's what they said you're supposed to do. Later on, I, I realized that maybe only one to 5% of the people out there, you know, put more than the minimum to their 401k and, you know, aggressively save that much in their 20s. You know, I, I bought that house to live in and I thought that was pretty cool. I was definitely ahead of my time. But then I, because I was traveling around for work as an engineer, as a construction supervisor, you know, I was never home, right? And I think a lot of young professionals can, um, you know, share this experience that, you know, you're, you fly out on Sunday and I maybe get home on a Friday evening. This nice house I bought for myself, I was only there for one day. So what does any, you know, frugal, crafty young guy do, but rent it out? And that's what I did. And at that point, I took a pivot off of this linear path. And I discovered the taste of cash flow, where, you know, this, now I had a rental property. And I was making money four ways with the you know, the property appreciating, the mortgage um, being paid down by my tenants. So I got the, the equity build up there, the tax benefits, which you can kind of talk about later, and the monthly cash flow. And that monthly cash flow, although it wasn't very much, that was the aha moment where I was like, wow, if I just rinse, wash, repeat this, I'll be eventually be able to not only buy more properties, but be, be able to quit my day job, which I did not like. And at that point, I kind of, you know, became obsessed with learning about rental real estate and um, saving more and more of my money. Um, eventually, I was able to, because I was traveling around for work all the time, I was able to live in the in the hotel lodging and just kind of bum around. I didn't have any place to live. So my annual savings went up from 30, 40 grand a year to almost $100,000 that all of that was pretty much, you know, to buy more and more rental properties. That's amazing. And this was in your 20s. Yeah, kind of a kooky guy, right? Probably programmed from parents, you know. You know, a lot of my investors today are, you know, come from that immigrant um, experience where you're taught to be very frugal and save, 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 save. And, you know, we're kind of talking earlier, like, I, I really believe that when you're under a million dollars net worth, or certainly under half a million dollars net worth, that immigrant frugalness really, really um, allows you to save money to buy assets such as real estate. But 
um, as we'll talk more, you know, there's a paradigm shift that occurs after half a million, million dollars net worth where you have to kind of think differently uh, and do different things. It's not a bad thing. There's a little bit of an undertone of you saying, you know, oh, that immigrant mentality of, you know, working, working, working to put money aside. But that was smart of you. And I'm sure your life is so much more easier now. You're able to have the type of life that you want and you dictate how you spend your time. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, money's not everything, but it sure makes life a lot easier. And money is like, allows you to have freedom, financial freedom. But, you know, money allows you to do what you want with whom you want, where you want, you know, on your terms. So how did things develop into you now becoming the owner of the simple passive cash flow business? Yeah. So, um, you know, a little bit of the timeline, 2009 or 2007, I graduated college, started working. 2009, I bought that first um, property to live in. Then I rented it out. So that was kind of the, the start of being a landlord. I, I will say, you know, I think a, lot, a big turnoff from people investing in real estate is they think it's like house flipping and wholesaling. A lot of those activities are more for the guys who are more active and don't have that much money. You know, like I was good with my money. I had a good paying job and that's what I focused on. And I focused on being a passive investor. And I even used professional property management to do all my dirty work for me. So although I was technically a landlord, I was kind of a lazy landlord. And that's kind of what we teach a lot today or, you know, so that you can focus on your highest and best use, you know, especially if you're a doctor, lawyer, engineer, accountant, pharmacist, et cetera. So I just saved up my money and bought another property. And then I started to realize that, you know, at the time I lived in Seattle, Washington, and I started to realize that sophisticated investors invest for cash flow. And how do you ensure that your positive cash flow at the end of the month? Well, you invest in these more secondary and tertiary markets. So we don't invest in places like California, Seattle, Hawaii, New York, Boston. These are known as primary markets where the numbers just aren't going to work. Uh, we look at this thing called the rent to value ratio. So you take the monthly rents divided by the purchase price. And we need something that's about 1% or higher. So we're able to cash flow. So, you know, we were buying, initially I was buying properties that are a hundred grand purchase price where, you know, it rented for over a thousand dollars a month. So a thousand divided by a hundred grand, that's 1%. Um, the other thing is like the cash flow, right? I think a lot of people, you know, it, you know, worry like, well, real estate goes up and down, right? But the reason why the website's called simplepassacashflow.com is because we're cash flow investors. Yeah, it's nice when the properties appreciate. And of, of course, we try to sell when the property, the market is good, but it's almost a hedge strategy. We're more in it for that cash flow, that monthly revenue that comes in. And you remain positive cash flow when you stay above 1% rent to value ratio. Of course, that's, you know, it, that's good kind of for people starting out and it took me a while to understand it. Um, and you have to underwrite a deal and they'll go a little bit more in detail. Um, if, you know, people want to go to my website, grab my free analyzer so they can kind of dig into all the little line items on the expenses for a property to make sure they truly cash flow. they can go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash analyzer and grab that for free. But, you know, in a nutshell, you know, we're buying cash line properties. And I, I bought, after that, I bought four in... Birmingham, Alabama, one in Indianapolis, one in Pennsylvania, and five in Atlanta, Georgia. And that kind of brings us to about 2015. 
at that point. I had 11 rentals. I was bringing in about $3,000 passive income. And this is after the mortgage and more importantly, after all the expenses, vacancy, repairs, all that stuff, taxes, insurance. So it was pure profit. Um, I think a lot of uh, investors out there, they kind of, they they don't truly understand that. Yeah, maybe you you bring in a thousand dollars a month, and your mortgage is eight hundred. You're not technically profiting two hundred. There's a whole bunch of other expenses in there that they're not accounting for. When I mean three thousand, I mean after all expenses. But again, this is kind of what we we're talking about earlier, right? There's a paradigm shift, and at that point, I was becoming more of an accredited investor. Um, you know, a lot of people start off with rental properties. I mean, a lot of my clients' parents, who are the first-generation immigrants, they have many rental properties, but they did it all the wrong way. What they and the mistake is they pay down their properties, and there's probably going to be people who gasp out there. But investing is a game of return on equity. So if you have a lot of equity in your your property or your home, the worst thing you can do is pay off the debt. The debt is probably the most valuable thing. What you should be doing is either getting a HELOC, refinance, or selling the asset and taking that equity and buying two, three, four, five properties and growing it over time. Of course, you know, you've got to be smart about this. You have to manage your debt service coverage ratios. Basically, you, you've got to make sure you're cash flowing in the other assets, right? Just in case there's a recession. But if you do this prudently, you know, you can vastly grow your net worth. I mean, this is how I was able to safely grow my, my portfolio so quickly. And so safely. Um, and I think that's, you know, a lot of my clients' parents who were the original immigrants, you know, they had that mentality of pay down their properties, which is why they only have a handful of properties paid off now. Sure, their net worth might be two, three million dollars, but if you do this in a prudent way, um, you know, you should be able to grow your net worth past three, four million in probably a decade or two. Um, and then off to the races from there. Um, if people want to get more information about this, and there's a spreadsheet we have for people to look at their own portfolios. If they have rental properties, they can go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash ROE, standing for return on equity. But you know, this is where I started to get around other high net worth investors. And I think this is where, where I made the mistake. And I, I call this kind of the immigrant mistake where you're kind of looking out for yourself. You, you, you know, you got to be careful, right? Is what our parents teach us. You never know who's a shyster out there, but the people who transcend and get their net worths over two, four, five, ten million dollars net worth, it's all about playing nice with others. And this is where I kind of found myself joining other mastermind groups, getting around other high net worth working professionals and high net worth folks. And it's all about collaborating with other people, finding where to invest, what deals to invest, and more importantly, who to stay away from. So it was interesting because I was wondering if you actually funded all these properties you were buying because you were working and saving, but you're saying that you took out mortgage loans on some of them, right? And just managed them prudently to bring in, to make sure that you have cash flow coming in. Right, right. So, you know, the, the, the general standard is 20% down payments on properties, right? It, it, you'll never get enough money. I mean, you could, so it can take you forever and this is not effective. You're never going to be able to buy properties with no debt. And the fact, you know, one kind of aha moment was like, well, why is the federal government in their pseudo government entities, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, giving these really sweet loans? 
to real estate investors? Well, because the assets are very secure. And that's one of the reasons why I invest in real estate, um, other than the tax reasons. The banks categorize the asset class, such as real estate, as very secure, which is why they give very favorable long-term fixed debt at very low interest rates. It's, it's almost silly to not take advantage of that. Interesting. I'm actually taking an investment course recently here throughout 2022, and I'm learning that as immigrants or in the immigrant community, as generally to average person might have this perspective that debt is such a negative thing, but it sounds like you're basically changing our mindset or paradigm to say, no, debt is actually a good thing. This is how you use that to make money. What's your, yeah, what's how, your perspective? All I say is, um, you know, debt's like a tool, right? Just like a hammer is a tool. A hammer can hit nails pretty effectively, but it can also hit people on the head and kill them, right? So it's all important how you use a tool. No different than debt, right? When you apply debt, you need to be managing your debt service coverage ratio. Some people look at it from loan to value. I look at more from debt service coverage ratio. Uh, if a house is making you $1,000 a month and your debt service is 400 bucks, man, you do that all day, right? But if you have a property in California where you know you, it's a lot higher property priced property and your rents aren't as high, you know, you, to bring in $2,000 a month is probably going to cost you that or more on your debt service. That's, that's not smart, right? So it's all about, you know, looking at, you know, are you cash flowing at the end of the day on net property? And it sounds really simple, but I guess it's hard because most people are very debt adverse. And some of the stories I've heard, you know, I don't know if it's like Asian or, I mean, it's all immigrants. <laughs> it's like, yes, nobody's, yes, I... nobody's special. You know, it's kind of like, you know, mm -hmm. every ethnic culture has their rice that they shouldn't rice. be having because it's too much carbs, right? Like, yeah, but I, I like my rice, you know, like it's the same thing. Like everybody has their, you know, whether it's the Bible where they've pulled some line out of it or they, you know, they don't want to be a slave to somebody or, you know, like a Chinese thing or a Japanese thing is, you know, you don't want to owe anybody anything and you know, they don't want to, for some people, it's about um, privacy, which is kind of silly to me. Um, you know, they, because when you take out debt, your name is kind of in the public records with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac and different, you know, debtors, the, you know, a lot of the old school immigrant or, you know, the, the old world really freaks out about it. But, you know, if anybody did a Google search on anybody today, they'd be, they'd probably lose their mind. Right. But for whatever it is, I mean, I tell people, look, you just got to get over it. You know, do, what's, what's more important to you and your family? I mean, let's just take, you know, in, in the neighborhood I live around here, it's, it's, it's a, it's a middle-class area here in Hawaii. Um, you know, the houses here are about a million dollars in value. People work their whole lives to pay off their, their debt and own that home outright, which is the wrong thing to do because they have so much lazy equity and they're not doing jack for them. Uh, you know, the, the neighbor here, they, they, could, they could take that money and make 10% pretty easily. Probably could be making 20 to 30%, but let, we're just going with 10% as a very conservative number. 10% on a million dollars is, you know, that's a hundred grand a year. That hundred grand a year could be paying for private school education for two or three kids or grandchildren. Mm. In this right. case, 
um, it, it, life's about choices, but it is about you know education here, right? And which and that's kind of my passion is educating people on not just be doing it the lazy way or the way everybody else is doing it. And this is kind of the the struggle. I consider myself a smart guy. I went to college, right? And I question things, but for much of my early 20s, I was blindly putting money in the 401k in the stock market because why? Everybody said I should. And I was buying a, a house to live in, which I don't necessarily agree on for most for some people. And and I'll, I'll reiterate that. like I do think buying a house to live in is the right move for most people because most people are really bad at managing their money. They spend more than they make. They don't make enough money. And them buying a house to live in is a forced piggy bank. You know, mm. Kind of thinking about, you know, your unmoney savvy nephew, right? If he gets $5,000, he'd blow it, right? So it's better to, for him to put his money into the mortgage payments and it's gone. It's out of his, his grasp. Right. But the people I work with, many who are immigrants, were good savers. We're the, <laughs> we're the silly guys who max out our 401ks right after college every year. Yeah. Um, we're not buying these frivolous things. And, for those people, and I would argue maybe it's like 1% of the population out there, maybe 5%, but it's a very small portion. Those people are better off going in and buying assets that increase their net worth over time. At the end of the day, the score, the most important thing in terms of finances is your net worth and how is it growing? If you're paying off your debt, your net worth is barely growing, barely. It's just merely keeping up with the pace of inflation. If you're taking your money and you're putting it into assets and you're, especially if you're value adding those assets, like how we do with the apartments, your net worth is going to grow by leaps and bounds. What I learned in college myself, and I've heard so many times and I have proven for myself too, when you get a 30-year mortgage, you pay for that thing two or three times over. So you might think you're paying it off. But all that money, you probably pay that off. You pay so much in interest in a few years. I actually did some uh, calculations recently on somebody's home, and they've already paid for that thing once already. They still have like 15 years left on it, and they've already paid off for the thing. They still owe so much on that mortgage. That's the exact counterpoint, right? Like that is entirely not true if you took your money and you grew it, right? So it's all about. So you're exactly right. You do spend a lot of money on interest costs, maybe two times the amount, right? You pay over time, mm-hmm. but you're looking at it myopically. If you would have taken that same down payment and you grew it at 10, 15% every single year, you probably grow your money three times more than the entire total interest plus principal payments. And that's what I'm getting at, right? It's just, this is just a pure numbers exercise. And I think that's where people, they, they lose sight of it. They want to go after, they want to pay off the debt to minimize their interest payments. But what they lose sight of is the big picture, which is taking that money that's going and paying off the debt and growing it elsewhere. I mean, from a, a lot of my investors are engineers. So they, 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 they get this on the simple level where why would you want to pay off 5% debt, put money into that and, and make 5%? where you could make 15%. I mean, this is what banks do. We need to understand what the professionals, the banks do. And it's not that hard. What the banks do is they give us you know, 5%, but they go and take our money and they grow, grow it at 15, yes. 20% plus. 
Exactly. Why the heck are we not doing that? <laughs> right. Right. But because we've and, been taught otherwise. Everybody yeah. behaves and operates a certain way and we've been taught otherwise. But I'm now coming into the paradigm shift as you're now sharing on, on our show today that we need to start thinking differently about money and not be so debt averse as you put it. I do recognize it's an uphill battle. I mean, like, you know, the big shifts for me were, you know, not buying a house to live in, instead invest in rental properties or assets. Um, the second one was investing in the 401k mutual funds, because that's just a bunch of retail crap investments, quite frankly. And I'm sorry if that's offensive to some people, but this is where your network comes into play, right? When you're working your day job or your your you know your peer group is not accredited under million dollar net worth people, that's just all you, you have. I mean, myself, I didn't know any accredited investors within my circle. It wasn't until I paid to get into other groups and grew my net worth was I was able to change my circle. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, it's like. I can remember it very vividly when I was a young engineer and you're, you're listening to the 60 year old talk about social security and 401ks. And now I stop, I, t- I tell people, it's like, you never take financial advice from people who are not financially free. Why the hell would you want to listen to that poor fool who's been at that job for 30, 40 years, right? right. But it's hard if you don't have access to high net worth people, then it's an uphill battle already. And you're kind of going against, you're definitely going against the grain and going against what your parents taught you or what your family and friends do. Um, But that's why, you know, we created the free podcasts and, um, you know, for people to kind of educate themselves. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just math. You know, this is not rocket science. It's not that hard. But for the average person though, that's one of the American dream is to own a home. Whose dream is that? The National Realtors Association, so they can get their commission, or their National Lenders Association, well, so they, well, that's you know, debatable. Like- <laughs> that's debatable. But when you talk to regular people who have married, they're married with children. That's their goal. They want to buy a home, so they have a roof of their ho- over their head because they don't know otherwise. So, how do you speak to those people now on a level where they can really get what you're saying? Because they're no, what are the chances of them being in a circle with a, someone with a half a million over over a million dollar where they can get access to some of these investment options that you're you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. I had the aha moment pretty early. You know, I'm just pretty lucky by that. You know, when I had my little rental property, I was making like 20 to 30 percent returns on my money and I wasn't doing anything special. I wasn't flipping properties or doing all these other nonsense things that take up a lot of time. I was just head down in my day job and just passively investing. Um, mm-hmm. But when you include the four ways you make money, mortgage pay down and tax benefits, appreciation and cash flow, you make like three or four times more than you know the general masses making supposedly eight to 10 percent in the stock market that goes up and down like a roller coaster and freaks people out. Um, you know, if people want to dive into numbers, they can go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash returns, digest the numbers yourself. But the options are, you know, you put you pay down your debt in your house, you're going to make three to five percent there. You invest in the roller coaster stock market at eight to ten percent when where quite frankly, most of your money is being stolen from you in hidden fees. Or you get off the beaten path and you invest in alternative investments and pick up a rental property or two. 
You know, I mean, if everybody listened and bought one to a few rental properties, they would be financially free in like a third amount of the time. And, and I think people, if they sat down and, you know, downloaded some of our spreadsheets and, you know, kind of played out with the numbers, do what the numbers say, you know, the numbers don't lie. I'm thinking of my audience now who are thinking, okay, so I'm 25 right? Just finished college, I'm working, or let's say there's a family, husband and wife, they don't have a, an undergraduate degree, right? They're new to this country and they're trying to work. Their goal is to buy a home. They want to have a family. How then you hear this big thing about credit and the fact that you need to have like, you know, over 700 or over 600 to even qualify for certain things. Is credit a part of this? How are they going to get access to get loans to get these rental properties as you're putting it? Yeah. If you don't have credit, you can't play ball. And and that's what makes this type of real estate investing difficult, right? There's a barrier to entry. To buy a rental property, you're going to need $30,000 down payment, You know, maybe a little cash reserves in there too. And this is why it's unfortunate as you know, the rich get richer and the poor middle class get worse. Right. Mm. If you're unable to put your money into assets that go up and down with inflation, you're screwed. Right. And and not many people out there can amass, you know, saving 10 grand plus. Um, for those people, I'm sorry. I mean, I I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that's I can thank my parents who taught me how to save my money, which is always number one and number two, work hard to go get a college degree. I mean, there's all these other ways you can make money, but I'm not everybody to everybody, you know, like I, I help people who have good jobs, who are already good saving their money, who are able to save at least 20 grand plus a year, Mm -hmm. um, you know, take them to the next level in terms of like, you know, if it's, I mean, I mean, maybe you can kind of walk through this. I mean, typically it's number one, they don't make enough money, right? I, I'm not a huge fan of college. I think it teaches a lot of nonsense but it's a critical part to play this game that we live in society. College gets you higher pay jobs, period. There are anomalies to that, but it's part of the game. I'm not a big fan of college, but I'll probably just pay for the damn thing for my kids, right? But as far as like the second thing, like maybe you're just not good at your personal finances. Like I would say if you're making 60 grand a year, you have a college education plus, I mean, you should be able to save, you know, close to five figures every year. If that's not the case, you need to tighten the budget. And I would Google like personal finance skills and stuff like that. Well, you make me stop and think about, okay, what am I doing? <laughs> well, let, um, I mean, let's dive in. I mean, who who's kind of the person you're thinking of out there? Like, like right? just say somebody who makes like a uh, hundred thousand, like okay. how much are you saying that they should be saving per year? Yeah. I mean, that was myself, right. In my early twenties. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, granted, you know, I didn't have kids, right. Um, for those of you with kids, I've got one myself. They are pretty expensive. So I sympathize with that. But this is why you got to get your stuff in order before you have that for people listening. I'm not a big fan of like Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman guys, but those are big influencers and kind of like get yourself started with personal finance. Yes. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, get your budget out, you know, just like 
like with fitness, count your calories, right? Count your count your income and your expenses and, and, and pay down your debt. Your... Dave Ramsey's all about Not, the debt snowball yeah, so, and paying off your debt. So that so that Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman, they cater towards the very low net worth people who have financial illiteracy and mm. bad finances, right? Where a lot of my people that I work with who are good savers, they should not listen to that at all, right? They kind of point out the, the paradigms. So basically the goal is if you make a hundred thousand, you're saving, maximizing your savings, which is like, is there a ratio where you say you spend this much percentage, you're saving this much every two weeks or every month not, that you're getting not really, paid, for I mean, example? I've, you know, if people are living in high priced places like California, Hawaii, Seattle, and they make a hundred grand, hundred grand ain't that much. So maybe if they can save 10 grand of that, but if you're living in a lower cost area, why should you not be able to save 20 grand a year? Folks, if that's you, look for the holes in your budget, right? You might, you're making good money. I have people making less than that and they're able to save a lot more. Right. So the goal is to get savings so you can use towards a down payment on a property that could you can use to turn around and bring you extra cash flow. Right. Because, you know, I'm not one of those fake real estate gurus who are trying to teach you to flip houses, wholesale houses, or, or get rich quick, right? The type of investing I teach requires you to have money. It's passive real estate investing. If you don't have money, you can't invest. Right. right. So that's the step, first step. And then you're teaching folks how to run the numbers, how to find the types of properties that are worth investing in, and then how then to keep this going. Yeah, I mean, we give all that information out for free um, these days. Um, we, we work with mainly accredited investors, you know, folks that have a net worth a million dollars or more, or, you know, for like, we have a bunch of younger guys who are like doctors or dentists or engineers, accountants that make that high salary and they jump into large syndications with us, you know, so we'll go as a group, we'll buy kind of like apartment behind, you know, like, you know, like a 200, 300 unit apartment complex, we'll bring in passive investors and we'll joint venture on it together. Okay, I see. So you mentioned your podcast. What's the name of your podcast? Uh, passive Real Estate Investing uh, via Simple Passive cash flow. Okay, so people can check you out there as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we started it back in 2016. Back then, we were kind of teaching folks to how to buy remote rental properties because oftentimes the best properties where it meets the numbers or the rent to value ratio isn't going to be in your backyard, especially if you live in California or Hawaii or, you know, places like that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of the remote investor viewpoint, but like I said, after a certain point, you know, I got up to 11 rentals myself, owning little rental properties is not scalable, you know, and it, it it just makes more sense to go in as a passive investor on a larger venture where, quite frankly, the deals are better because there's less competition going after these medium to large size apartments than your little single family home. Again, you know, to, for folks to put that lens on, it's all about competition, right? You know, a lot of people cannot rub a hundred grand together to save their life, right? But there are still a lot of people who can go after, you know, little rental properties, but as you start to ascend to larger apartment deals where you may need five, 10, $15 million as a down payment, um, there's less and less competition for that. And that's kind of the area that we kind of focus in on. 
So it sounds like we're coming around to saying this immigrant mentality of working hard, earning and saving your money is basically the way that we're going to acquire this cash for these down payments, right? So it's not yeah, so it's yeah. not a bad thing. Yeah, you know, it's not a get rich quick thing, right? But it's a get rich surely thing. And you know, the, the one thing that we didn't kind of touch upon is when you start, why do I invest in real estate? Well, it's a hard asset, it creates cash flow. But I think the biggest thing as you know, as an investor, I can invest in whatever I want. But the real estate has these really cool tax benefits, right? You can depreciate the asset and create a paper loss on paper. You might have made $3,000 from an investment, but you shelter that with the paper losses so you don't pay any taxes on it. And for a lot of our higher income earners, what's really cool is, you know, we can do cost segregations, get a whole, whole bunch of, of these losses. And sometimes they can even use the passive losses to offset their ordinary income. So becomes very powerful when you have a hardworking, you know, immigrant doctor who makes 600 grand and he lowers his AGI down to 300, effectively saving him $150,000 in taxes. And this is exactly what the government wants you to do, right? This is why they create such incentives for folks, the wealthy to do. Right. Because this is the way the United States is set up. It's set up, you hear people say it's set up for businesses, right? Because of the tax breaks that you can get. And it sounds like you're saying uh, with the work that you're doing as a real estate investor, that it's prime set up for this to be able to be profitable. Yeah. And, and for me, like kind of what personally drives me is, you know, just helping out the hardworking folks out there. A lot of them are immigrants and a lot of them are just, you know, it's the, it's the shrinking middle-class, you know, it's not the it's not the wealthy people paying taxes out there, right? They have real estate that knocks their their uh, ink, their taxes down to nothing sometimes. And it's right. not the poor people living off the government subsidies, kind of just sitting on their butts. Mm-hmm. It's the hardworking folks whose parents, you know, told them to go to school, study hard, or, you know, just generally be a big contributor to society. It's the shrieking middle class that powers this country forward. And I, I don't know, I just like, myself, my parents, and a lot of my peers in our investor group, that's the story. And there's a different way that they can, you know, carve out a different future for themselves. And they deserve it. They, to me, they deserve it the most. And sounds like that's what drives you and in, in what you do. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just feel like there's a big, um, big lie. You know, we're all taught to go to school, study hard, um, invest in your 401k where, you know, just the Wall Street companies get rich off these hidden expenses. But you have to take a little bit ownership and, you know, expand your network, educate yourself to get off of their, their, uh, their Wall Street roller coaster. And, um, you know, that there, then you can unlock these tax benefits and then, you know, you're off to the races on your own. Do you participate in REITs? What's called REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust? Or yeah, what do you REITs think about are, those? REITs are just institutionalized garbage products. That's all they are. <laughs> you know, like, yes, they're investing in real estate, which I like, mm-hmm. but it's a retail product, investment product, right? And that's kind of a, another layer to this, right? Like we invest directly in apartments on our own and investors come with us and it's direct to the source kind of like wholesale, right? But a REIT, mutual funds, even like some of these ETFs, they're institutionalized products with a high profit margin from for the 
the, the people promoting them and putting them on or these big Wall Street companies, right? Your Fidelities, your Vanguards, et cetera. Not until you're in different circles do you kind of get the wool pulled over your eyes or as I call it, you know, like the Wizard of Oz effect, you know, pay no attention to the Wall Street and their REITs, right? It sounds kooky. I mean, it definitely is like <laughs> a lot of people will call this the red pill of, of finance and investing. Um, if it's intriguing to folks, you know, check out the podcast, check, you know, check out my book on Amazon. Um, you know, it's, it, it's a different world out there. Um, but it does take courage to get off the beaten path and do things that, you know, the people in your, in your circle, current, your current circle are doing now and everything. And for me, I mean, that's kind of my story too, right? Like I, I, I came from where everybody else was headspace. You know, I'm, I'm first generation wealth. I wasn't born like a trust fund kid. My parents didn't know this stuff. Let me just play the devil's advocate here for a minute. Have you experienced financial freedom doing what you do? So you've quit your engineering job. You're doing this passive income, real estate investment. Where are you now? And like you said earlier, only take advice from people who are financially free, like money advice from people who are showing you that they've done it. So tell us how you've done it. And I've quit my day job back in 2018 mm-hmm. and I call it, I call it like three steps and I'm still, you know, always creating new articles and ideas on this, this financial independence, you know, journey, but, you know, I call it, you know, simple passive cash flow 1.0 is, you know, kind of what we talked about earlier, right? You know, just be positive cash flow for yourself, right? On a personal side, you may not have any investments, but, you know, get your shit in order, right? <laughs> you know, or make more income. Now, simple passive cash flow level two is, you know, buying rental properties, you know, using good debt, growing your net worth, getting over a million dollars net worth, getting to two to three million dollars net worth. And then simple passive cash flow 3.0, where I kind of see myself as, you know, you're financially free. You don't need to trade time for money. You're not going to a job every day. But the struggle there, and this is definitely first for problems and people may shake their head, but it's like, you know, you need to find some kind of fulfillment in life. Um, You're going to need to be doing something, even though nobody is yelling and screaming or there's no mortgage payment for you to, you know, be motivated for. Um, Certainly the people who get here on our own, we have enough drive to kind of carry us forward. But, you know, this is where, you know, how do you keep this going? Because ultimately, like normally what happens for the first generation wealth folks like myself, you know, my kids will probably, you know, they don't fall too far from the tree and I'm going to be hounding them on consciously and, you know, taking out good debt, um, not trading time for money unless you have to in a job, being more entrepreneurial. But eventually my kids, kids, um, you know, I don't have too much influence over there, which is why 90% of wealth leaves families in two to three generations. So it's simple passive cash flow is, is 3.0 is more about finding fulfillment with yourself, but trying to pass down the legacy and keep it going as long as possible. And right. don't having trust fund kids who just do drugs all day long. So you mentioned your book, what's the name of it and how do people find it? Uh, the journey to simple passive cash flow. Um, you know, people find it on Amazon and Audible. Okay. All right. So it's also an audiobook. Okay. So you have your podcast, your simple passive cashflow.com, and your book that you just mentioned. Yeah. And if people want to cheap out there, they can go and uh, 
I, I actually go and read it on YouTube, the whole book. It's not that long, actually, but they can go to simplepassacashflow.com slash book, and um, you can kind of hear the audiobook version. And it, people like that version because I kind of interject my little side stories and commentary on the side that the book editors didn't allow me to put in there. Well, I thank you so much, Lane. Thanks for sharing your story with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've certainly caused me uh, several moments of like stopping and uh, I'll now have to reevaluate my whole (laughs) new perspective on money and the way I've been looking at things. This is a new idea. I'll definitely be checking out your book and your website. I think if everybody just did a little bit of what we're kind of talking about buying, you know, one or a few rental properties, they'd be financially free very quickly. And the problem there is, well, how will society function, right? If all these hardworking people aren't, you know, playing doctor for us, you know, cleaning teeth and building bridges, building roads for society. I don't know. And, and there's a lot of people that they'll listen to a podcast like this and not do anything. And that's fine. Right. We need people to get our coffee, build bridges for us, shuffle paper or whatever y'all are doing out there or where you guys are driving to. Um, you know, financial independence is not for everybody. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's true. Um, life experience will tell you that not everybody that you share your experiences about how to accomplish things will act on it. And um, it definitely takes action in order to get your life into a different place. So Thank you for that takeaway today. Thanks. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.